You know, war in a whole lot of ways is an economic story. From American public media, this is Marketplace. In Los Angeles, I'm Kai Rizdal. Friday, today, the 25th day of February. Good as always to have you along, everybody. This is not one of those weeks that needs a whole lot of setup to wrap up our Friday segment. So I am not going to. Anna Swanson's with the New York Times. Heather Long is at the Washington Post. Hey, you two. Hey, Kai. So, Heather, let me start with you and, and something you were tweeting about earlier this week and, and, uh, and have I know been thinking about. President Biden was pretty clear in his first set of remarks this week, which seems honestly uh, a long time ago, that the cost of the sanctions that uh, he and the Europeans are imposing on President Putin and the Russian economy are going to hurt here as well. And I, I wonder if you think uh, Americans who participate in this economy are ready for that, higher gas, wheat costs, all of that? Uh, I was definitely really worried about it, but uh, there was actually some encouraging news today. I, I, it depends how much stock you put in polls, but the, a new Washington Post mm-hmm. ABC poll actually found that uh, 67% of Americans are in favor of sanctions. Oh, wow. And even when you ask the question and say, are you in favor if your gas price goes up, uh, 51% wow. say they they are there. And I think we've all been doom scrolling. I know I have and seen <laughs> yeah. these horrible images of this invasion and of innocent people whose lives are being totally trans turned upside down. And it, it's hard not to sit here and think, you know, okay, nobody likes $4 gas, but am I willing to do $4 gas to save global democracy and to try to restore order in the world? Um, I think when you put it that way to yourself, it's a little bit harder to not uh, be willing to absorb a little bit of pain here for a much, much bigger gain in the world stage. I, I had not seen that. And honestly, it's heartening. Uh, and I will now go read that whole poll. Um, Anna, let me ask you this. A lot of attention paid to the financial part of the sanctions regime that uh, the Biden administration put into place, also the Europeans, banking and and all of that. You've been doing a lot of reporting on the technological transfer, um, the semiconductors, all of that. Talk about effectiveness mm-hmm. there, right? Because a lot of the coverage of the financial sanctions has been, oh, they're not going to be as effective as this other thing. Talk to me about technology. Yeah, so the technology sanctions were really remarkable, um, in my view. I mean, they were announced in concert with a bunch of different countries, the EU, Japan, Australia, the UK, and the administration estimated that they would affect about $50 billion of products, which is about a fifth of what Russia imports um, in a year. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, they, the thing is, they will not take, they will not have the biggest impact right away. Basically, what they do is um, freeze Russia's technology in its current state. Um, so, you know, if you're the Russian military or your shipping company or an aerospace company, you won't be able to get the newest, te- the newest chips, the newest laptops, um, new updates for your software, things like that. Um, so over time, um, it would degrade um, the industrial base there, the military. Um, but yeah, again, not much of an immediate um, impact from that. You, you know, it's interesting, Anna, because President Biden said yesterday, it's going to talk to me in a month uh, about whether or not these sanctions have been effective. So. So, so in a way, he's kind of playing the long game. 
Yeah, I'm not sure if, you know, in a month they really will be taking that much um, effect. But, you know, they they did target these very much at Russian elites, at the military, at strategic industries. The sanctions were really designed to try not to kind of hit ordinary people. They had a carve out um, for consumer products uh, that Russians would buy, um, like phones or washing machines. Um, And they also exempted, there are no sanctions on food or oil and gas as well, um, in part because that would definitely add to inflationary pressures. Yeah. Well, so Heather, that thank you for the segue there, Anna. Inflationary pressures. <laughs> we have them here at home. Um, the Federal Reserve, as we all know, unless uh, Jay Powell and the gang have a really big change of heart, is going to raise the federal funds rate. Um, and at the same time, we've got a war and we've got supply constraints and economies are slowing. Thus, I have to ask you about stagflation, inflation with a stuck economy. Do you expect it? And if so, how bad could that be? Uh, There's definitely a risk of stagflation, but I think it's been amazing to see how resilient the U.S. economy has been so far. All these polls keep telling us that people are very gloomy and upset about inflation, but boy, did the people keep spending. Uh, You know, the latest consumer spending data, I know you all run down the numbers and your listeners know numbers well, strong consumer spending in January. Uh, We still, and the biggest number of all that's really heartening here is we do still have uh, people have a lot of money in their bank accounts. So yeah. we saw some JP Morgan Chase data that shows that across the income spectrum, people's bank accounts are still much higher than they were pre-pandemic. Now, I will say the bottom 50% has been spending some of that excess savings down, so it's not going to last forever. Uh, but right now, it still looks more like boomflation than it does mm. stagflation, mm. at least in the United States. And that's why I think... You know, the Fed is ready to, to, to do these interest rate increases because they still see the biggest risk as um, very overheated demand in many markets. Let me ask you this, though, Anna. Do you think, um, and, and look, this is unknowable, so your answer could go either way. What the Fed is trying to do here is engineer a soft landing, right? Take us down from the boom uh, and make it not so bad on the way down, not start a recession. Do you think they can get us there? It's a really tricky question. So I actually I resulted I consulted our um, NYT Fed expert Gina Smilak yes, on this, and I was her. relieved to hear her say the answer here isn't at all straightforward. Um, what the Fed should do, it's in a very tricky situation. So, given you know how rapid inflation has been, how long lasting it's been, how broad based it's been, you know the Fed is clearly set up still set up for interest rate increases this year. But today you saw markets pare back their expectations for a big rate increase in March. Mm-hmm. Um, you could have, you know, disruptions in Ukraine, especially the gas pushing peak um, inflation higher and keeping prices elevated longer. So you could end up in a situation where they have to hike more because of that in the long run. Um, so you have a lot of, you know, complicating factors. And I think the Fed could be rethinking how many interest rates increases they want yeah. this year and whether a bigger than normal rate increase is warranted. Indeed. What is Jay Powell thinking? Heather Long at the Washington Post, <laughs> Anna Swanson at the New York Times. Thanks, you two. Thank Thanks, you. Kai. Have a nice weekend. On Wall Street today... It was green all the way around. Not that that makes much sense. Land war in Europe. Hello. Details, numbers. You know the drill.
Another day with more progress for the Russians in their invasion of Ukraine. Another round of sanctions from the White House, this time on Vladimir Putin and Foreign Minister Sergei Lavrov personally, which is a big deal, symbolically less than punishing, though, in practice, because Putin's finances overseas are notoriously opaque. And the sanctions the other day against a handful of Russian oligarchs close to Putin are almost as tough to enforce, tangled as they are in a web of shell companies and legal diversions. So how does sanctions enforcement happen? Marketplace's Matt Levin explains the game of economic cat and mouse. President Biden wants to make it as costly as possible to be in the circle of Russian elites that surround Vladimir Putin. These are people who personally gain from the Kremlin's policies and they should share in the pain. Making sure those oligarchs can't evade that pain is the job of the Treasury's Office of Foreign Assets Control, or OFAC for short. Charlie Steele used to be one of the 300 or so OFAC employees. He says the first step is to update the public list of what U.S. banks need to avoid. It can be individuals, companies, banks, vessels, and they put up lots of identifying information, a.k.a.s, street addresses, vessel numbers. You can go to OFAC's website right now and see this list. Russian oligarchs have a lot of AKAs. OFAC knows those aliases from public documents. But also, they have access to government information all the way up to the highest top secret levels. Once all that info is posted publicly, it's really up to banks to make sure anything owned by an oligarch or an oligarch's alias or the subsidiary of an oligarch's business is frozen. Treasury doesn't really track money movements in real time. They set up this apparatus and rely on really the private sector to know where the money is to stop it. And so then it becomes a bit of a cat and mouse. Oligarchs are really clever mice, though, especially when it comes to hiding their wealth through real estate. Amber Vitali advises banks on sanctions compliance. She says if banned oligarchs were to channel funds through a friend of a friend to buy a Manhattan condo, they'd stand a decent chance of not getting caught. If there's no known connection or easily found connection between the oligarch and that person, I think that would definitely be possible. Vitaly says in recent days, Russia has taken offline some of the databases the Treasury Department uses to connect those dots. I'm Matt Levin for Marketplace. All right, now that we've covered the forensic accounting part of sanctions, how they get done and enforced, here is part of how President Putin's been trying to insulate Russia from them. Money. Foreign money. Foreign reserves is what they're called, and we figured a primer was in order. Marketplace's Savannah Marr is on the explainer beat today. Think of a foreign reserve as a country's rainy day fund, but held in foreign cash. It's often worth keeping currency in a form that isn't your own currency. Emma Ashford is a non-resident fellow at the Modern War Institute at West Point. She says when a country's own currency loses value, foreign currency can be useful for all sorts of things, like carrying out routine international trade. But large stockpiles of foreign reserves just are very useful for helping to insulate yourself from global economic shocks. Like international sanctions. 
And right now, Russia's foreign reserve stockpile is worth more than $600 billion, according to Jean-Maria Malesi-Ferretti with the Brookings Institution. Which is a hefty amount. He says we can trace this back to 2014, when Russia paid the price for annexing the Crimean Peninsula from Ukraine. He says after that invasion, Flows of foreign capital to Russia have become a trickle. And to prevent that from happening again, the country has been socking away wealth in the form of euros and the Chinese yuan and gold. And now it can use those reserves to prop up the value of the Russian ruble and keep its economy afloat, at least for a while. I feel confident they could keep going for a few months at least. Carol Osler is an economist at Brandeis University. The bottom line is, if they don't do anything to offset that, their money supply in the economy is going to shrink. They can't just intervene once. They have to keep intervening. And she says that's where even a $600 billion rainy day fund of foreign cash starts to look a little thin. I'm Savannah Marr for Marketplace. Coming up, we had our own little community. Diaspora all over the place. But first, let's do the numbers. Yeah, once again, the sad happy because, are you kidding me? Dow Industrials up 834 points today, 2.5%, 34,058. NASDAQ up 221, 1 and 6 tenths percent, 13,694. The S&P 500 climbed 95 points, 2 and a quarter percent, 43 and 84. For the five days gone by, though, the Dow down about a tenth percent. NASDAQ up one and a tenth. S&P 500 added eight tenths percent. The military industrial complex had a good day. Lockheed Martin flew up three and a half percent today. Northrop Grumman and Raytheon both climbed around four percent. Apparently artisanal is still a thing. Etsy beat analysts' expectations in a big way. Shares picked up more than 16% today. Digital payments company Block, which runs Square and Cash App, added 26% after beating expectations. Bond prices, as long as I'm here, they fell. The yield on the 10 I mean, where am I going, right? Yield on the 10-year T-note, 1.97%. You're listening to Marketplace. The global cyber battle that comes with the war in Ukraine. From American Public Media, this is Marketplace Tech. I'm Kimberly Adams. Yesterday, President Joe Biden announced new sanctions on Russia, punishment for the invasion and ongoing bombardment of Ukraine. The sanctions target the Russian economy and individuals Biden says benefit from the Kremlin's policies. But before the invasion came the cyber attacks. Cybersecurity experts say Russia disrupted or took offline Ukrainian government websites and other critical infrastructure. Dmitry Alperovich is the executive chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitical think tank. He says these new sanctions are significant, but come with the risk Russia will retaliate with cyber attacks against the U.S. 
Well, President Biden was sending a message to Putin not to launch cyber attacks against us, that we're prepared for it, that there will be retaliations for it. He wasn't specific about what they may be. And when you look at the sanctions package, it is quite extensive. Uh, they're targeting uh, major financial institutions. They're prohibiting exports of semiconductors and a range of other high-tech technologies to Russia. Uh, this will be very severe impact to the Russian economy. So it's not clear to me what else uh, Vladimir Putin is going to be afraid of um, if he chooses to retaliate against the sanctions package of cyber attacks. What might those cyber attacks look like if he does take that route? Well, given that most of the sanctions are in the economic sphere, he may very well decide to uh, retaliate reciprocally and, and target our financial systems, trying to go after, for example, our market uh, settlement systems that settle stock trades on, on our stock exchanges. They can try to go after the Fedwire system that's responsible for the wire transfers across banks. They won't be able to have permanent shutdown of those systems, but they can have intermittent disruptions that can last for some hours, maybe even days. How much of a role does this cyber component play in modern warfare? Well, cyber now provides a great asymmetric weapon where you can reach far across the ocean and touch someone and uh, attempt to destroy their network, uh, have an economic impact uh, on their country. So Russia has used that extensively, really over the last 35 years when they started developing this technology back in the mid-80s and has really perfected it uh, as a coercion tool on many battlefields, including in Ukraine and, and in other countries as well. And how resilient is Ukraine to any additional cyber attacks as this conflict continues? You know, I, I think when it comes to Ukraine, unfortunately, cyber is going to be the least of their concerns when they're facing this onslaught of military assaults and, uh, you know, potential for decapitation of the government that the U.S. intelligence community is so afraid of. I, I don't think that they're going to be too worried about any cyber effects at the moment, given just the complete uh, assault from all sides um, that their country is experiencing right now. What about Ukraine's allies in Europe? How much of a risk is there to their systems that these cyber attacks from Russia might affect their operations? Well, if the Russians decide to target Europe, um, just like they may do so against us, the Europeans are going to be very, very vulnerable to, the, to those types of attacks. They have their own, obviously, large banks and, and financial systems that could be targeted by the Russians. And the Russians may very well decide that they will first hit Europe um, in this uh, escalation move before they go uh, against the United States. What resiliency measures are governments and private businesses taking in advance of this? Well, the U.S. government has been working with the private sector for a number of weeks now on this initiative that they're calling Shields Up, letting the uh, private sector know that they should be on alert, that they should be really on a maximum uh, stage of alert, um, looking for any potential attacks on their networks and responding to it quickly. They provided them with some intelligence on what the Russians have done in the past that could be useful in looking for additional indicators on networks uh, in order to respond to any potential new intrusions. Dmitry Alperovich of Silverado Policy Accelerator. Dmitry mentioned that Shields Up program, where the federal government has been trying to get everyone ready for potential cyber attacks. We'll have a link to the government's website about it on our website, marketplacetech.org. And we touched on this a bit here on Marketplace Tech back in October when the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, 
was warning of cyber threats to local water and wastewater systems. On the Shields Up page, CISA does say, quote, there are not currently any specific credible threats to the U.S. homeland, end quote, but that the agency says it's mindful that Russia could consider escalating things. And we'll link to Politico's nightly newsletter, which has a breakdown of some of the cyber attacks leveled at the Ukrainian government ahead of the Russian invasion. And Fortune has a story exploring just how much of a risk there is for a Russian cyber attack on Ukraine's allies. One thing the piece points out is that NATO has maintained for some time now that a cyber attack on a country could be, according to NATO, as harmful to modern societies as a conventional attack. But NATO seemed to dial back that 2014 statement with a communique last year, saying, quote, significant malicious cumulative cyber attacks might, in some circumstances, be considered as amounting to an armed attack, end quote. Because remember, under Article 5, if one NATO ally is attacked, it's considered an attack on everyone. We'll link to a Defense One article with more on that, along with both the 2014 and 2021 NATO documents. Even so, NATO maintains cybersecurity is a core task of collective defense and that the determination of when a cyber attack would trigger Article 5 will be taken on a case-by-case basis. Jesus Alvarado, Sasha Fernandez, and Daniel Shin produce our show. Brian Allison is our engineer. John Gordon is our editor. I'm Kimberly Adams, and that's Marketplace Tech. This is APM. This is Marketplace. I'm Kai Rizdahl. One of the questions President Biden noticeably declined to answer yesterday when he was announcing that big round of sanctions on Russia was whether he is working with China to isolate President Putin and Moscow. I am not prepared to discuss that, is what he said. The very idea that an American president would have to talk to Beijing about geopolitics was born 50 years ago this month when Richard Nixon went to China. And in the years since the economic relationship between the two countries has come to almost define globalization. So in the wake of the Trump administration's tougher line on China, trade war, anyone remember those? Marketplace's Jennifer Pack has an update on where things stand now. At a factory in eastern Jiangsu province, dozens of women sew lace dresses and Playboy bunny outfits by the millions. Nearly half of the products were destined for America when I visited in the spring of 2018, just before the U.S. imposed tariffs. These workers may not have known, but they were partly fueling U.S.-China trade tensions. Take a seamstress I met at the time, Chen Xinwei. She says she worked an eight-hour shift less than the 10 hours many of her colleagues did. And the starting salary here is $5,500 a year. Chinese people work longer than Americans and for lower wages. That's how lingerie and other products made in China are so cheap for U.S. consumers. And for many economists like Chad Bound with the Peterson Institute for International Economics in Washington, that's not a problem. But Bound says it was for President Trump during his time in office. He basically looked at any country with which the United States ran a bilateral trade deficit, meaning we imported more than we exported to them. And China was number one on that list. uh, And that was something that he wanted his trade war ultimately to fix. 
It started with the deficit, but expanded to issues like China stealing intellectual property and forcing American firms to transfer technology. As punishment, Trump imposed rounds of tariffs on Chinese exports, including nuts and bolts made by Jinan Star Fastener. Zhang Yuhua is the sales director. For the 25% tariff on our products, our big American clients swallow most of the extra cost, while we pay the rest. Meaning Americans pay for most of the Trump tariffs. At the height of the dispute, the U.S. imposed extra tariffs on two thirds, or over three hundred billion dollars worth of Chinese imports. China retaliated, and the tit for tat finally stopped in January 2020, when both sides signed what's called the Phase One trade deal. Again, Chad Bown. President Trump said China committed to buy an additional. Two hundred billion dollars worth of American exports of goods and services over the course of 2020 and 2021. So, did China meet the target? China actually bought none of those additional two hundred billion dollars worth of American exports. Chinese officials say they tried, but there is a pandemic. Henry Wang is the president of the think tank, the Center for China and Globalization, in Beijing. I think it was、uh, wasn't really、uh, that bad. At least on the agriculture side, China has、uh, purchased a record number of、uh, agriculture products. Exports of American corn, wheat, and pork went up, though it wasn't entirely because of the Phase One trade deal. And the Chinese government removed some barriers to sectors like financial services. Sure, China could do more, says Wang, but. China didn't get much、uh, encouraging signs to make further efforts to do that because.、Uh, Uh, we keep seeing U.S. sanction China. He's referring to the U.S. putting more and more Chinese entities on lists, which blocks them from buying certain American technologies, and that also hurts companies not directly targeted, says Matthew Margulies with the U.S.-China Business Council in Beijing. Many Chinese companies have a perception that working with an American company is a political risk, and so just by virtue of that perception, has had a competitive impact on American companies here. Today, most of the tariffs from China or the U.S. remain. Again, Chad Bown with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. There's no sense in which we're at a stage with the U.S.-China relationship where the U.S. economy is better off today than it was before the trade war. Back at the lingerie factory, founder Lei Chongrei says the pandemic has made his business more reliant on U.S. consumers. Uh, 90%. Ninety percent of our products are exported. The U.S. is our biggest market at seventy percent of exports, much higher than in 2018. The year the trade war started. In Shanghai, I'm Jennifer Pack for Marketplace. The Ukrainian Congress Committee of America, which is kind of an umbrella group for Ukrainian organizations here, they figure there are somewhere between a hundred and a hundred and fifty thousand Ukrainians living in New York City, and the longtime heart of that expat community is a handful of blocks in the East Village in Manhattan, known as Little Ukraine. Ukrainian restaurants, Ukrainian churches, and banks as well. So, Marketplace's Kristen Schwab went down and did some talking to people. I can tell you a lot of what's happening on the streets of Little Ukraine, but I can't play you a lot of tape 
because everything is eerily quiet, and Ukrainian-Americans here are feeling quiet, too. There's a bank teller who says she's distressed but doesn't want to talk, a restaurant manager whose eyes are glued to the TV in the corner of the dining room. At another restaurant, a worker tells me he hasn't slept in days and is too overwhelmed to talk on tape, but gives me a tired fist bump on my way out. There are signs hanging outside the Ukrainian museum that say, We Stand with Ukraine, candles on the steps of a nearby church, and so many blue and yellow flags. Veselka, a popular Ukrainian diner, painted it on their cookies. Outside, I talked to Christine Karpovich, who's taking lunch to go. Stuffed cabbage <laughs> with meat and uh, sauerkraut and kasha. Veselka is part of her weekly routine, but today's lunch brings extra comfort. Karpovich, who is 86, immigrated from Lviv in 1949. She says she woke up feeling very anxious. But I've been feeling... <laughs> very anxious for a while now. Putin does this psychological war. I mean, he wants to destroy destroy people's spirit even before he attacks them. A line is forming outside the restaurant. There's been a steady stream of customers from all backgrounds coming to eat Ukrainian comfort food. Jason Bichard is the owner. I'm exceptionally busy since I opened the doors this morning at 8 o'clock. Veselka has been in his family and in the East Village for 68 years. Bachard's grandfather immigrated from Ukraine in the 40s. Much of the staff at the restaurant is Ukrainian, too. I mean, we're, we're a small community here, but most everybody can identify with Ukraine to some extent. A small community, yes, but its presence is big. Sofika Zelyuk is a member of the Ukrainian National Women's League of America, which has its headquarters down the street. She grew up in the East Village, too. Ukrainian is my first language. and. Till I was about four or five, I didn't know that there was another language in the United States. I went to a Ukrainian Catholic grammar school and high school. We had our own little community. She says had, past tense, because many Ukrainians have left this area as the neighborhood changed. But we are still here. And there are days where I walk on the street and I hear Ukrainian. I hear very little English. Zelyuk says in recent weeks, the community has been coming together to protest and fundraise, and it's helped her feel supported while she checks in on friends in eastern Ukraine who are messaging her from subway stations that have become bomb shelters. But some of the Ukrainians she's most worried about are two that live in her very apartment building, her parents. My mother, who is 88 years old, is now reliving her war years during World War II. She thinks about herself as a 10-year-old girl hiding. That is something that is very difficult to see. Right now, a lot of Ukrainians are reliving the memories of what drove them here decades ago. In Little Ukraine, I'm Kristen Schwab for Marketplace. Final note on the way out today, a reminder, if we needed it, that this is a global economy and that war is, in fact, as I said, an economic story. Saw this in Bloomberg today, that the European car makers Volkswagen and Renault are going to have to temporarily shut down some plants because they can't get parts for them that are made in Ukraine. And when we talked, Heather and Anna, I, about the cost of this war spreading, this is what we were talking about. 
All right, we're out of here, but this is your moment of economic context. Cryptocurrency edition on this Friday. CNBC reports that Ukrainian NGOs and volunteer groups have gotten more than $4 million in crypto donations since the invasion started. Our theme music was composed by B.J. Lederman. Marketplace's executive producer is Nancy Fargali. Nancy Cassett is the managing director of news. Neil Scarborough is the vice president and general manager. I'm Kai Rizdahl. Have yourselves a great weekend, everybody. We will see you on Monday, all right? This is APM.